0: Now what I mean, boys and girls, by induction ceremonies are those acts done by which a person or people are brought into a a club or an organization or a responsibility. So for example, when we elect new uh, government officials, they have an induction, that's an inauguration, by which through formal acts they're brought into the exercise of their office. When when military recruits finish boot camp, there'll be a a formal induction ceremony. Some of you have gone through that, by which the men then are inducted into whatever branch of the armed services uh, that they are uh, working in. Uh, In the church, most of you here witnessed the uh, ordination of Pastor Groff. That was an induction ceremony by which, through Christ's appointment, he was formally inducted into the gospel ministry. But this morning, we're going to consider the most important induction ceremony that there is in the history of the human race. And this is an induction ceremony that at least most if not all of you here today have already yourselves experienced. And that is the induction into the body of Christ, his church, through his appointed ordinance of baptism. So if we continue to work through. Uh, the various elements of worship, uh, we come today to baptism. Next Lord's Day, I think I'll deal with uh, Isaiah chapter 9 in relation to a prophecy of the Savior, and then in January, we'll have a sermon on the Lord's Supper, after which time, by God's grace, we'll begin the series in Job. But today, we want to consider the induction of baptism, our text being 1 Peter three, twenty-one and 22. Corresponding to that, Baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him. As you know, that Peter's letter was a letter of hope. Peter writes to the dispersed church that is in the midst of a severe persecution. We can see that from various words of encouragement that he gives to <coughs> the, the church. Uh, but he constantly brings people back to Christ. Brings them back to Christ, interestingly, as the example for us in how to suffer. And as the basis of our hope in our suffering. And we see that here in the context uh, that we read as Peter, again, reminds them and us that we are going to uh, suffer for righteousness' sake, and that, in fact, is a blessing. Through that process, we are to um, exalt Christ in our lives, uh, in our behavior, so by our words, we can give a good answer even to the persecutors. And he reminds us that it's, it's okay to be persecuted for righteousness. We don't want to suffer because of evil. And then he brings us back to Christ once again, showing us that he was the just one who died for the wicked that he might bring us to God, having put to death in the flesh, but made alive in or by the Holy Spirit. And then he makes this illusion. And it's very interesting. Peter here is a lot like Paul, where one thought just kind of folds into another, not Casually or carelessly, though, he's he's moving toward a climax that actually will tie all of this together. So he, he reminds us of the days of Noah, the 120 years in which Noah was built on the ark. And Peter will later say that Noah was a preacher of righteousness, and that it was in Noah's preaching that Christ, the prophet of God as the second person of the Godhead, was preaching by his spirit through Noah. So that's the reference. So the people that were destroyed are now in the prison house of hell. Christ didn't go there and preach to them. No, this is a reference, uh, which you can see when it says, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. And it says in Genesis that God's patience was 120 days. So while the ark was being built, uh, Noah was preaching uh, to those around him to repent and flee to God. But Noah and his family, eight persons then, were brought safely through the water of the flood. And then our text, corresponding to that, baptism now saves or saves you. So what I want to show you here is that uh, uh, the deliverance of Noah and his family uh, in the ark is a picture of baptism which is a sign to us and a confirmation that we belong to Christ. So, God's deliverance of Noah and his family through the ark is a picture of baptism, which both uh, separates us from the world and confirms to us who we are in Christ Jesus. So we'll consider two things, how baptism separates us from the world and how baptism confirms to us our eternal salvation. First, then um, in this opening statement, corresponding to that, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Need to explain to you the language that's here. Translated in our Bibles corresponding to that. The word that's actually used here is antitype. Now in the New Testament, antitype sometimes can refer to the original pattern, but here Anti-type puts it over against a type. And that's why most of the Bibles would translate this, the New American Standard, the, the ESV, is corresponding to. Corresponding to what? What Peter is saying here is that Noah and his family was a type, a picture of salvation by Christ in baptism. And so when he says corresponding to that, he's saying now what really happens in baptism is prefigured for us in Noah and his family in the ark. So what do we know then about Noah and the family in the ark? Well, in the ark they were saved from and through the waters of destruction, right? They were saved from the waters of destruction. Those in the ark were not destroyed by the flood, but in the wise providence of God they were saved through the waters, the very waters that came to destroy the wicked were the very means of those in the ark, a picture in a sense of the church, of being safely brought through. <clears throat> now what does that tell us about baptism? Well, first you need to notice the grammar of the text. We've explained the term, but the New American Standard helps us here better than most of the translations. For you'll notice that corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, dash. What comes next is a parenthesis. I think this is clear in any understanding of the text. And that parenthesis ends with a good conscience. Much to what Paul does in Romans chapter 5 in his discussion of uh, Adam as a type of Christ. So, for the time being, pull out the parenthesis and read the sentence this way. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected to him. So here Peter is showing us that baptism saves us because of our union with Christ Jesus. Notice that the efficiency here not is in baptism, but is through the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Baptism shows us, pictures to us, that we are in fact in union with Christ. And when he speaks here of Christ's resurrection, that pulls together all. It points back to why did Christ have to be raised from the dead, because by His perfect obedience and by His uh, just wrath bearing on the cross, He died in our place to satisfy the justice of God, dead and buried. By His resurrection, He was declared to be victor. He was justified, as Paul says, in Him we are justified, which means if you're in Christ your sins are forgiven and you're constituted legally righteous in the sight of God." But notice that Paul doesn't stop with resurrection, does he? So there's this remarkable statement, and what does it have to do with all this? Where is Christ now? See, the resurrection was but step one of his exaltation, as the catechism so wonderfully lays out. There are three other steps. His ascension, his session at the right hand of God the Father, ultimately his return. All that's wrapped up in this last statement He's at the right hand of God, having come into heaven. Not only has he then been raised from the dead, he's been exalted on high. And when he says in Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth, that's what he's pictured here by Peter, because now he's been exalted over all things. And in particularly that exaltation is in terms of angelic beings, and I think that Because of the context here of persecution, these angels and authorities and powers subject to him are the demonic angels and demonic powers, not just the good angels and the good powers. No, Christ now is exalted. Christ is in authority. That means Christ is controlling all the persecution then, all the persecution today. He is sovereign. He's on high. Now, baptism points us to the reality that we were raised with Christ, because we died with Christ, raised with Christ. And remarkably friends, we're seated with Christ in the heavenlies, in this mysterious way that we have been exalted up, safe and secure in Him. So what water baptism then testifies to us in the first place, because of union with Christ we are separated from the world. Just as Noah and his family were separated from the world safely in that ark, being carried uh, through the waters of destruction, so we who are in Christ Jesus are in the ark of God's church, having been inducted in there by our baptism. And so baptism then is this picture of our union with Christ and membership in the church. But now if you're going to come into the presence of Christ... If you're going to live in the midst of the church, you cannot come with your corruption. This brings us back now to the use of water in baptism. God designed water when he created it. One of the primary things was to be a means of cleansing. And so quickly the old covenant picks up on the fact that water was an element for cleansing. You see it throughout the Mosaic ritual. On your own you might look at Numbers 19 in the the cleansing with the water and the hyssop and the blood of, of the red heifer. John's baptism, of which we'll hear more again tonight, uh, speaks to us as water is a sign of cleansing. And so the washing with water uh, speaks to us first of our pollution. We are dead in our sins and trespasses. We are corrupt. We're not just guilty. We don't just need to be justified. We need to be cleansed. And thus we need to be born again. That glorious work of which Jesus speaks to Nicodemus, using from Ezekiel the figure of water and spirit, not as a physical water, but now as a cleansing regeneration, cleansing and new life, cleansing and resurrection from the dead. And that's how baptism then is used, uh, in our experience, to bring us then into the church. But there's a solemn note here as well, as you well know. All in the ark were not converted, were they? We hear of the eight families that safely went through judgment in the ark, which is a type of baptism. But then it's also a type to us that all inducted, all separated from judgment. Not all are truly spiritually separated from that judgment. There's Ham and his descendants who afterwards demonstrates that he and then they later, that they're still dead in their sins and trespasses. So my friends, this indeed is a solemn warning. I want you to pay attention to it. Do not sit here this morning and trust your water baptism to mean that you have been saved because you have been inducted into the church and are a member of the church. Do not trust that, that you have been saved. There were hams then. Simon the magician in Acts 8 was baptized and yet he did not have the root of the matter in his heart. He was yet in his dead and his sins and his trespasses. And if you sit here today and you're trusting the externals of church membership and of baptism and things like this to mean that you're accepted with God then you are deceived. This is why we must be those who build on the rock. Not the sand of self-deception. Not the sand of, of formalism. No, the rock of Christ. The Spirit of Christ indwelling us, who has separated us from the world spiritually and brought us then into this union with Christ, that we then are separated from the world by our baptism. So that's the first thing we see here, that uh, baptism separates us from the world and inducts us into the church. Now we go to the parenthesis to see the second thing, and that is baptism confirms to us our eternal salvation. So the parenthesis first is a negative, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, positively, but an appeal to God for a good conscience. Now people need to pay attention to the negative because it would, that removes any idea that baptism in itself does anything uh, in terms of the water of baptism regenerating, renewing, or whatever. No, language is used this way because of that very close relationship of symbol and reality. And they can be used interchangeably as vocabulary words. But here now, it's quite clear negatively what baptism does not do. Baptism does not remove dirt from the flesh. Now, this is an unfortunate translation. Now, it's true that water baptism then cannot cleanse you um, in in any way. It's not its purpose. But I take this language, translate it this way not the removal of defilement from the flesh. We know that flesh is not primarily the body as it's used in the Bible. It has to do with our sinful nature. And the word translated dirt in most of our translations, uh, actually in the Greek translation of Isaiah 4, same word is used, when the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion, and purge the bloodshed of Jerusalem. James takes a word that's from the same family in James 1.21, therefore putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. I think that what Peter's actually saying here is, look folks, baptism in no way removes the stain and corruption of your sin. It cannot take away the filth, the corruption, of your sinful nature. That's not what I mean, says Peter, when I tell you that baptism saves. So then, what does he mean? He says it is an appeal, and the word is an answer to God for a good conscience. We see now that faith must take hold of what happens in baptism. And when we possess the reality of what happens in baptism. Namely, we have a good conscience. Now what's a good conscience? Well, Hebrews 9, 14, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God? Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The the, the pure conscience, the good conscience, the conscience that's had applied to it from the expiation, the sacrificial work of Christ, the blood of Christ from the cleansing of defilement and guilt. Cleanse from dead works. No longer guilty, but now made whole and new in Christ Jesus. Again, you see the need, you must possess the good conscience to have the reality of baptism. You don't have the good conscience, you don't have what baptism signifies. So this appeal or answer then, I think signifies three things. In the first place, when it says uh, an appeal for a good conscience, appeal to God, it means to come to God holding to the fact that, Lord, I may come boldly into your presence, that my baptism confirms to me that you've accepted me. And I'm coming to you now boldly in Christ Jesus. And I appeal to you to accept me because I come to you in Christ Jesus. And my baptism testifies to me that I'm whole in Christ Jesus. So that's the first appeal or answer of a good conscience. Now this morning it appealed, it it occurred to me, That there might be something else in the context. For you you remember that uh, he speaks to us uh, in the context of having a good answer. Um, Sanctify, verse 15, Christ is Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you with gentleness and reverence, yet keep a good conscience. So in the things which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. This also seems to be the appeal or the answer to a good conscience. Here are the people being persecuted. If they maintain the good conscience, he says, you then will be able to give a good answer, a defense of your faith, a bold answer to those who persecute you, that you are in Christ Jesus and accepted in him. Uh, It's similar to what Paul would say to the Philippians. It'll be to their condemnation you suffer in this way. And then the third aspect of this appeal to good conscience, I think, is the covenantal aspect of baptism. It is then the answer or response of a good conscience that we take in our baptism. As we take our vows, as we give ourselves over to belong to Christ, as we commit ourselves to walk in his holy laws by the power of his spirit, then we are responding with a good conscience. So you see then how baptism comes to us a confirmation of our salvation, our eternal security. It enables us. We take hold of it by faith. This also is a reminder of a truth that the efficacy, the working of baptism, is not tied simply to the moment of its administration. We must repeat the Lord's Supper. We need regularly, weekly, to feed on Christ we're baptized only once. But that's why it's important to understand that Peter now says, you look back at your baptism. By faith, it is effective in your life. It will enable you to do that, which God calls you to do. And so, the salvation of Noah and his family in the ark, through and by the water, is a picture of baptism, which is both a distinguishing and confirming sign and seal in the life of the believer. Let me direct your attention then to the meaning of baptism, and you'll see the parallel. If you want to follow it in larger catechism, 165, page 962, back of your hymn book. 165. Baptism is a sacrament of the New Testament wherein Christ hath ordained the washing with water, The name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost to be a sign and seal, notice of engrafting into him union with Christ, remission of sins by his blood, need of cleansing, regeneration by his spirit, of our adoption and resurrection unto everlasting life, and whereby the parties baptized are solemnly admitted into the visible church and enter into an open and professed engagement to be holy and only the Lord. You need often to meditate on what your baptism means that you then might do what we're instructed to do in 167. How is our baptism to be improved by us? How are you to make use of it? What is this appeal? See, this is answering that. What is this appeal? What is this answer of a good conscience? The needful but much neglected duty of improving our baptism is to be performed by us all our life long, especially in the time of temptation, And when we are present at the administration of it to others, by serious, I hear what you do, serious and thankful consideration of the nature of it and of the ends for which Christ instituted it and the privileges and benefits conferred and sealed thereby. That's why I've spoken today of these things. That's why I remind you of the catechism question, what it is. Because at baptism, when you think on baptism, you are to think on what it means. And your solemn vow made therein to God. For in Baptism you've entered into a covenant with God, humbled for our sinful defilement, for it regularly reminds us of our need of cleansing, our falling short and walking contrary to the grace of baptism and our engagements. By growing up to assurance of pardon of sin, you see again there is the appeal, the answer, of a good conscience. And of all the other blessings sealed to us in that sacrament, by drawing strength from the death and resurrection of Christ, into whom we are baptized. For the mortifying or killing of sin and quickening of grace. And by endeavoring to live by faith. To have our conversation, our life in holiness and righteousness. As those that have therein given up their names to Christ. And to walk in brotherly love. As being baptized by the same spirit into one body. It's glorious you see. This appeal of a good conscience. How we may use our baptism for assurance and strength in the Christian walk. But what then does this mean to you boys and girls who are here today? Because when you were baptized, you didn't take a vow, your parents did. And maybe you possessed the reality of this union with Christ and and maybe you didn't. And that really is irrelevant. By your baptism, boys and girls, God brought you into this covenant and has obligated you now to do that which we, your parents and grandparents, have done. And that is you now must take hold of Christ in the covenant. You today must do these things that have been laid out for us and how to improve our baptism. Which means that every one of you boys and girls need to be resting in Christ Jesus alone for your salvation. Right? Right? and desiring then to walk according to God's holy law. Now your baptism tells you that if you've done that you have a good conscience. You belong to God now not just in an external manner in the church but as this true uh, born again adopted child of God. Now it matters not whether you are regenerated in the womb or as an infant or, or later. That's what happens to your conscience when you take hold of Christ. And of course, it's our desire that every one of you don't be like the person to whom I spoke earlier, who's trusting their baptism and their church membership. No, you rest in Christ, but you must make this covenant. God's brought you into the covenant, but now you must own him as your God. And that is our great desire. As you have questions about this, go to your parents and ask them, what in the world... Is Dr. Piper talking about. I want to know that I'm in Christ. And they will help you understand this. Our desire is to see each one of you stand before God and this congregation and make these vows that Christ is your own and you will serve him as well. Let us pray.